Good morning, everybody. I asked for uh, intro music, smoke, and lasers, but I didn't get any of those. I just had to carry this thing. So for those of you that are new or haven't been here in a while, um, my name's Tony Runyon. I'm not the teaching pastor here. Uh, I'm an elder here. Our teaching pastor, Tony Walls, um, has been on sabbatical. Uh, This is the last week, uh, actually, that he'll be on sabbatical. Uh, And in that Uh, The time that he's been gone, uh, the elders here at Providence have been um, teaching a sermon series called If I Could Tell You One Thing. Um, The idea is kind of, if there there was one sermon that you could give, uh, you know, what what would it be? Um, So we've been doing that over the past several weeks. Uh, I am the last uh, last of those. That was by strategy because I remember growing up that uh, Scripture says the last will be first. So I'm hoping that that plays out. With this, I figure this could go one or two ways. One is I do terrible, but it's the last Sunday. You guys have grace for me because you know Tony's back, and I'm never asked to do this again. So that would be the first way. The second would be I blow your minds this morning, which really like sets the stage and the bar high for Tony Walls next week, and he has to step up his preaching game. And then he also will not ever ask me to do this again. So. <laughs> Either way, I'm, I'm good with that. So before we kind of dive in here, I would like to pray just to get our minds uh, centered this morning. If you would, pray with me quickly. Father, uh, just as it's been said a couple of times this morning, we all come in here with, with stuff we're dealing with, with distractions, um, with worries, um, with fears. And uh, we pray that this morning we could set those aside, that we could listen to you um, and what you have to say to us through your word and uh, praise things and your son's name. Amen. How many of you guys recognize that? <laughs> no. I really, yeah, okay. So that's a, that's a fidget spinner. Uh, would you go to the next one? You guys know a fidget spinner? That's a stress ball. Go to the next one. CBD oil. Anybody seen that anywhere recently? No? Okay, go ahead. This is actually something, I don't know if anybody knows, this is a weighted blanket, and uh, it's like, this is known as a gravity blanket. The, it actually like pushes up against your body as you sleep. It's supposed to make you feel warm and cozy. Maybe like you're in your mother's womb. I don't know, it's kind of weird. So, okay, so why am I showing you guys these? Um, I, read, I read this article uh, a website called The Guardian. It says that fidget spinners were one of the most popular items bought on Amazon in 2017. Uh, and it went on to say that the CBD industry, which includes tons of products, as you guys I'm sure have heard on the radio and seen and signs in the city, that industry is expected to uh, reach a value of $22 billion by 2022. Sleep health industry, which sells like the weighted blankets for stress um, and other things, uh, was valued between $30 billion and $40 billion in 2017. Why? Why is that a thing? This article uh, went on to call this the anxiety economy. Um, I'm going to quote from it. It says, The anxiety economy shows no signs of shrinking. With white noise machines, salt lamps, and meditation headbands advertised alongside yoga selfies on Instagram, AIDS for anxiety disorders in 2019 are branded like covetable, scented candles. Scrolling through the products, one starts to think of it as a small but universal ill like dry lips or shaving rash, and one just as easily treated which it could be argued, threatens to normalize this mental illness, to recode it as a standard part of modern life rather than something that requires medical attention. If one in six adults suffer from depression and anxiety disorders, that means there are five who have no need to be part of this market. And yet, 
under the blanket-style weight of advertising, find their thumbs hovering over the button. So this anxiety economy, uh, it may be a new developing market, but we all know that anxiety has always been around. Stress, depression, it's something that's been with us even since the fall. I can't imagine uh, the stress, um, anxiety felt by Adam and Eve once they've made the decision to sin, to go against God's word, this immediate feeling of conviction and anxiety that they must have felt. Today, I want to talk about the part that anxiety has played in my life, uh, and it continues to play. Uh, the cause of that anxiety, which I believe may be the root cause of anxiety uh, in most cases in people's lives, and how God has helped me through the, His Word and through circumstances to recognize and cope with these feelings. Uh, before I begin, I do have two disclaimers. Uh, first, I believe that mental illnesses are real and they are serious. I believe that in many serious cases, medication, especially when paired with counseling and regular checkups, Uh, can be used effectively in the treatment of these types of illnesses. Uh, Some of the things I'll be talking about today are strictly related to my experience. Uh, They shouldn't be seen as what I believe everyone else's experiences are. Second is, for those of you who think to yourself right now, well, I don't really worry about things. I don't deal with anxiety. I can check out here. Uh, First, I want to have coffee with you and see what that's like. But also, um, I I think you'll be surprised by the way that anxiety creeps into your lives um, in ways you might not even recognize. Anxiety is rooted in fear. Uh, So if you ask yourself, am I afraid of anything, what's your answer? Um, Why are you afraid of that? If even after answering that question you still don't think you deal with anxiety, then I would say you know someone who does. So listen to be a good friend, spouse, um, or parent. So... Many of you have known me long enough to know a lot of my story. If you were here, uh, if you're going to Providence back when we did the Your Story or My Story series, and a lot of my background will be a review for you, but for those uh, that don't have context, I wanted to make sure I kind of give you uh, the context uh, for how this has impacted my life. Uh, So I'm going to kind of go in parallel talking a little bit about my story and then kind of getting to the crux of, of my sermon this morning. Um, I was born and raised about 25 minutes from here, a place called Swansylvania, uh, born into a Christian home and incredibly blessed to have been surrounded by the gospel being taught regularly. Uh, people sometimes joke and say we were there, we were at church every time the doors were open. Uh, that's totally true in my childhood. In fact, most of the time it was us who was opening the church doors because we lived really close to it. So um, at the age of eight, uh, during vacation Bible school, I walked down the aisle at Swansylvania Baptist Church and talked to Pastor Mike Hensley, or Preacher Mike, as he's known to anyone who's gone there in the past 40 years, and I told him I wanted to be saved. Uh, he walked me through the process. He asked me to confirm that I knew that I was a sinner, and I, and I knew that, and that that sin separated me from God. Um, and he asked if I believed that God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross after living a perfect, sinless life, and I believed that, and that he rose three days after uh, and is alive today, seated by the throne of God in heaven. And I believe that. So I nodded to all these things. I'd heard this gospel story my whole life, which was short at that time, but I'd heard it over and over. And I certainly believed all these things, especially in my head. Uh, it was all I knew. And in that moment, uh, we prayed together that Christ would save me. And then I live happily ever after. So if you guys will pray with me. I'm just kidding. So. I was always a bit of an uptight kid. I know it's kind of hard to believe. Uh, I... I was, uh, I was really stubborn. I say was. I mean, you all know this is present tense, too. So I really liked being, uh, being right. Uh, my wife, Reed, has done a wonderful job bringing humility to me, to me in this department. So. But most of all, I really wanted to make people happy. Doesn't that sound good? Don't worry, it's not as good as it sounds. Uh, I think even at the age of 10 or 11, I realized I was a people pleaser. 
I say that because I began to participate in something called Bible drill. For those of you who don't know what this is, it's the epitome of what all the cool kids would make fun of. Um, so essentially, you would compete on who knew the most about the Bible. Uh, you'd memorize verses, uh, where books of the Bible were, and that type of thing. And you would go to these competitions, and actually, if you, uh, if you would win or qualify, you would move from like a the local to the state to the national competition. So, you know, lots of, uh, lots of fun. I was extremely good at giving the teacher or coach at the time uh, exactly what she wanted. And this really bled over into about every part of my life. Uh, I always wanted to be the, the nicest or the most selfless friend. I wanted to be the best student, uh, the best son, the most likable person. And I justified it by saying to myself, what's so bad about being a people pleaser? I mean, it's simply putting others' needs and, uh, and wants above your own to make sure they're happy. Um, after all, isn't this what Jesus commands us to do? Love your neighbor. Love people, right? And of course, we all know right now that my motives, as well as most people who are people pleasers, uh, when it comes to people pleasing, are really anything but selfless. Anyway, what I realized is that the desire to please people had at least one side effect that I knew of at this point, and this was when I was young, and that was it was exhausting. There's this constant feeling in the back of your head that you may have made this person mad, or you may have done this assignment uh, incorrectly, or you may have appeared to look like you didn't know something that you should have. Uh, and so you, you like have this feeling of panic, uh, your shoulders and neck tighten and tense, your mind races uh, for the, through the endless possibilities of how you may have screwed up. And you replace situations in your head and pick out the things you should have said or done versus uh, what you actually said or did. And all these thoughts, all this panic, it's based on something. It's based on fear. But fear of what? I think there's a lot of answers that can fill in the, in the blank, but I, th- I believe that most fears can be summarized by fear of people. So uh, I'll get into to that a little bit more later. So even as a preteen, I saw this in myself and, and thought it probably wasn't a sustainable or fun way to live, so I had to figure out a way to help. Uh, I began to remember a few of the verses I'd memorized a couple years before during Bible drill. So they're going to put a couple of these up there, but... One that I quoted all the time, 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. In Philippians 4, 6 and 8, uh, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, In addition to these two, I discovered this passage in Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 6 that some of you guys may be familiar with. I used to read this passage all the time. Anytime there was an opportunity to like teach uh, on those special nights in youth group where a student got to teach, I would, I would teach on this. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will, not much more clo- will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And these all build up to this last verse that, that I would always quote to myself. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, 
for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So oftentimes I would, I would recite these verses in my head. I, I felt my heart race, my sweat glands pour, my mind began running down a maze of endless paths that, uh, that would make me think about how I'd potentially made a mistake. Um, all these normally link back to some sort of relationship, uh, a friend, a parent, a teacher, even someone I just met. Uh, so I continued to battle with these feelings, even with quoting these scriptures. Uh, and the older I got and the more complicated life got, uh, the worse these feelings got. I carried this anxiety through high school uh, as I worked to be valedictorian. I didn't make it. I came in second. So still bitter about that. But uh, I lobbied for uh, best all around, and I sought to be the popular, easygoing friend. And then I went to college and continued this trend. I never missed a college class. I know. I'm a nerd. Uh, I retook English 101 my last semester so I could graduate with a 4.0 in class. Um, And then I continued to battle with an unsettled spirit day in and day out. Uh, I wanted to prove something to someone. Uh, and someone was really anyone that I interacted with. Didn't care. Just looking to prove something. Um, anybody. I needed to be the nicest or the smartest, smartest, funniest, hardworking, or ironically the most laid back, which obviously wasn't the case. So hear myself say all these things. It, it really it sounds ridiculous on, on this side of things. Um, it, it, and even as a matter of fact, so I was the last to, to have uh, the sermon and I think we found out this in Mar- March or something. And like the first week of March, I emailed my finished sermon to Tony. Like I was done. Like, uh, and I've tweaked it a lot since then. I say that uh, there's, no, there's not a problem with having drive. Um, but what's behind the drive? Why are you doing what you're doing? Why, why would I be so concerned with what someone else would think? Uh, many things that I'm mentioning sound over the top. But I would challenge you to think about decisions you make on a daily basis. And why do you make them? Why do you choose the words that you choose in conversations with colleagues or friends? Why do you post the pictures or the statements that you post on social media? After graduating from college, I entered a full-time MBA program at the University of Tennessee. The program was 18 months and was known for its relentless intensity. Great idea for an anxiety-ridden perfectionist. So while drowning in homework and presentations, a few things happened, like... It's a crazy time of life. First, I got engaged to Reed. Side note, wouldn't have met Reed if I didn't retake English 101. So proof, again, that God can work through our imperfections. The second thing was my grandfather, who I was extremely close to, was sent to MD Anderson Medical Center in Texas for a serious operation to remove cancer, and he was battling for his life. A large group of my family, including my mom and dad, lived in Texas uh, for weeks as he underwent intense and painful surgeries and recovery. And I got my first grown-up job uh, working for a national security company in Oak Ridge, uh, which was terrifying. Um, so as you, might, as you might imagine, things began to snowball quickly, and they spiraled out of control. At this point, I'd already sought help from a few doctors. Uh, I kind of recognized that I was, you know, a, an uptight or anxious person. Uh, some of these doctors had put me on different medications to help uh, manage my anxiety, but it wasn't addressing the underlying issue. I could not escape myself. Uh, So I started down a path of finding ways to help me escape my feelings. I would love to have a cup of coffee with with you uh, to talk more about this. If you'd like to know more about it, uh, you can also listen to the podcast from the My Story uh, sermon series. Uh, Reed and I talk a little bit more about this in depth there. So I kept things held together for as long as I could. My mind and soul were chaos, but I'd been pretty good, at least up to this point, at hiding all that. Uh, Because, again, my focus was on pleasing people. 
So my fear was basing people, and me falling apart in front of them would definitely not help me reach that goal. So finally, a little over eight years ago, everything came to a head. Uh, all the, the running, the hiding, the trying, it all caught up to me. And by the time I realized, I destroyed or severely damaged some of the closest relationships in my life. It's ironic, right? Uh, I ran with full speed for years toward the goal of pleasing people, and it ultimately caused me to fail people in ways that I never imagined possible. So there I sat. I was empty, depressed. I was ashamed. I felt hopeless. And I kept asking myself, how did I get here? How did this happen? I mean, I knew better. I'd been raised in a family that that uh, talked about the gospel, talked about the grace. And then God spoke to me. So one quick sidebar. During all this time where all these things kind of began to go south, I read scripture, prayed almost on a daily basis, uh, and I begged God for relief. But I can see on the other side of this that I read, the scripture I read and the prayers that I prayed were all on my terms. And they were in light of me achieving my goals. It was all for self-preservation. So there was one verse from my Bible drill days that I didn't share with you yet. And it was this verse that I had repeated and said to myself for years that doesn't actually mention anything about anxiety or worry directly that hit me like I'd never heard it before. Now, many of you probably have heard it or maybe know it by heart. You can put it up there. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. I didn't realize how many different ways you could hear this verse until this moment uh, when God spoke to me. It really has something for everyone. You know, how do I view God? You trust in the Lord. Where do I put my trust? In the Lord. To what degree do I trust Him? With all your heart, not some of your heart. I could go on, but you get the point. For me, it was all these things wrapped up into this one moment. What does it mean to trust in the Lord? To truly trust in the Lord with all your heart. I'm going to show you a short video clip here. Uh, when I was younger in church, one of my cousins, which is confusing because everyone at church was my cousin, uh, told a story. Uh, and in the story, I'll never forget this story. Um, and I was like, there's got to be some sort of illustration of this. Um, and sure enough, there was. So if you guys would go ahead and play this. Jean-Francois Gravelet, better known as Blondine, was a famous tightrope walker and acrobat. He's perhaps best known for his many crossings of the tightrope. 1,100 feet in length, suspended 160 feet above Niagara Falls in the USA. His act will be watched by large crowds and begin with a relatively simple crossing using a balancing pole. Then he will throw away the pole and amaze the onlookers. On one occasion, he crossed the tightrope on stilts. On another occasion, blindfolded. Another time, he stopped halfway to cook and eat an omelette. In 1860, a royal party from England came to watch Blondin perform. After his normal spectacular crossings, he then wheeled a wheelbarrow from one side to the other as the crowd cheered. Next, he put a sack of potatoes into the wheelbarrow and wheeled that across. The crowd cheered louder. Then he approached the royal party and asked the Duke of Newcastle, Do you believe that I could take a man across the tightrope in this wheelbarrow? Yes, I do, said the Duke. Ah, hop in, replied Blondin. The crowd fell silent, but the Duke of Newcastle would not accept Blondin's challenge. Is there anyone else here who believes I could do it? asked Blondin. 
no one was willing to volunteer. Eventually, an old woman stepped out of the crowd and climbed into the wheelbarrow. Blondin wheeled her all the way across and all the way back. The old woman was Blondin's mother, the only person willing to put her life in his hands. kind of crazy that's a true story was I willing to put my life in the hands of God I realized that though I'd spent years hearing reading learning memorizing and watching God save and love his people through scripture and through life circumstances I hadn't gotten in the wheelbarrow I told everybody else about how great it was and how he could do it but I hadn't done it myself instead I was putting my trust and hope in what people could do for me let me put it another way, referencing uh, Jonathan Edwards, and many of you may have heard this as well. Uh, he uses honey as an analogy. I'm going to s- summarize and paraphrase what he says. He says, I can show you honey. I can let you look at it. You can ooh and ah over its beautiful golden hue, the way the light bounces off parts and penetrates parts and radiates a beautiful glow. And I can tell you that it is sweet. And you can believe that it is sweet when I tell you it is. But unless you have tasted it, You don't truly know it is sweet. You can believe it is sweet because I told you. But believing honey is sweet doesn't mean you really know it is sweet. I could be lying to you. You only truly know honey is sweet when you've tasted it. I hadn't truly tasted the sweetness of honey. I knew all about it. I'd seen others taste it. I could describe it. But I hadn't tasted it. Instead, my trust and my faith and my salvation and my fear was in people. Though I convinced myself that I was a people lover, I was instead a a people pleaser. The focus was not on others, but on myself and my need to be liked by people. And this, of course, was driven by my fear of people. And that's not the type of fear where you cower in their presence, though sometimes that may be true, but this is more of a regard for people with reverence and awe. Go to the next two verses um, in 7 and 8 here. Um, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. See how closely related trusting in the Lord is to fearing Him. Frankly, this is quite the opposite of of fearing people. Um, There's an author, Ed Welch, who explains this innate sense of everyone Uh, that's within anyone, not just self-professed people pleasers, to be afraid of people. If you haven't read this book before, I would recommend it. It's called uh, When People Are Big and God is Small. Paraphrasing what he says, he says he's fairly confident that if Christians, someone who says there's a Christian, were put into a situation where a gun was held to your head and you were asked to profess your faith in Christ, that most people, he believes, would say yes. However, on a daily basis... We run from opportunities to acknowledge God, to tell others about Christ, or to even admit that we know Him. We have the mentality of, yes, you can kill me, but don't keep me from being locked. In other words, I'm okay if you're going to end things now, but if I have to continue to live on this earth with other people, please don't make me unpopular. He states it another way and says that we are more concerned about looking stupid, fear of man, than we are about acting sinful, fear of God. And we find our salvation in people. 
Being afraid is not wrong. The problem is when fear forgets God. If you can't see this in your own life already, like I see these images flashing before me where, where I, I show this in my life, what better example in Scripture is there than, than Peter? Let's read this uh, passage. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you were talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I can, I can feel that pain uh, that Peter has, because I see this in my life. After leaving everything in his life to follow Jesus, after walking on water, after seeing the miracles of Jesus, after defending Jesus in the garden with a sword, before he's taken to be crucified, three times he says he doesn't even know him. Why? Why does he do that? He had fear of man. That fear is inside of all of us. So what do we do with this? I'd like to offer some practical ways for you and I to truly trust in the Lord and try to avoid uh, and conquer the fear of man. None of these things are, are revolutionary things. A lot of things you've heard, you've thought about, I just want to break them down so, as a reminder of the things that we can do. Um, so I've got these. The, the first is acknowledge God for who he is. As I mentioned before, fear is so related. Fear of God is so related to trust in God. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is inside. This can be a trembling in your boots type of fear when necessary, but it's also a sense of awe, a healthy respect because of the power and the love of Him. So how do you do this? I mean, I had always heard fear the Lord, um, acknowledge God for who He is, but how do you do that? Part of that is through prayer. But not just pray. Cry out to God. Surrender to him. The verse that, that came to me during this time was acknowledge him in all your ways, in everything. Timothy, uh, Timothy Keller uh, is an author, pastor as well, and he, he wrote this book, Prayer. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about it later, but he notes that it takes pride to be anxious, not the good kind. He gives this example of a prayer for the anxious. O oh Lord, I fall into anxiety and fearfulness, but you face the most astonishing dangers for me. You were torn to pieces so bravely for me, I could be utterly saved and eternally loved in you. If you were courageous for me, facing those overwhelming cosmic evils, I know you are now with me. Therefore, I can be steady as I face my problems. This is an example of a prayer that you can pray, but what if you don't know the words to say that's where number three comes in. Um, read God's word. There are times when we don't have the words to say. I've been there too. When everything collapsed in my life, I could barely muster words to speak. And that's when I discovered it. And I mean truly discovered the book of Psalms. For me, it was Psalm 25 that allowed me to empty my heart and surrender to God 
and relinquish control of my troubles. But we have an entire book of prayers. Prayers of praise, lament, thanksgiving, adoration, shame, and sorrow. And supplication in our Bibles that are relevant and powerful thousands of years after they were written. So read God's Word. This next one, check yourself before you wreck yourself. If anyone's ever been part of a 12-step program or had a family member who, who is, um, there's one of the, of the tw- or there's two of the 12 steps that's actually mentioned two times, um, which to me uh, speaks to its importance. Step four in these programs are, I've made a searching and fearless moral inventory of myself. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? And step ten is, I've continued to take personal inventory, and when I was wrong, promptly admitted it. Is that something you do on a regular basis? At the end of the night, you've had a crazy day and you lay down in bed. Do you think about, how did I do today? Where, where did I fail? Where did I fall short? What could I have done better? The importance of this is based on something, at least I always remember my dad saying, which is Satan works in inches, not in feet. Day by day, the evil one seeks to have us make incremental decisions that will eventually lead us to ruin. I know this well. He did it to me. Think back to a time when you found yourself in a situation and you look back and say, how did I get here? Looking at yourself each day in an honest, critical, but loving way helps you avoid being in those situations. So, kind of, the next one kind of plays into this, because as Christians, we have the added benefit and requirement to check ourselves by the Word of God. And that's why I have to stress the importance of hiding God's Word in your heart, so that you will not sin against Him. Knowing God's Word in a way that you can recall it in a real-time or in real time, during situation when it applies, is invaluable. Do you think I knew the importance of the, the Bible verses that I was memorizing when I was doing Bible drill? Not really. I mean, I knew it was God's Word, and, and, and I knew that it must be important. But when things fell apart, I didn't really remember a lot of things that people told me. Or even the pe- people who were cur- encouraging me in the moment, what I remembered were these verses um, that spoke directly into my life, into my soul during that time. They gave me the comfort that I needed to make it another day. Um, and the last point is uh, community is key. So, yes, your relationship with God is a personal one, but God made us to be in community, it's all over the Bible. In community, we're encouraged and driven toward God. It's fun. It meets practical needs. It carries your burdens. And it shows you the needs of others. This is a scary one, but it, offer, it, it does offer opportunities for confession, which leads to healing. And so much more. This is so much of what we're about at Providence. And one of the reasons that we've structured um, our church around discipleship groups and front porch community Um, we're walking through the mud and the muck with one another. That's the idea. We're celebrating together. We're grieving together. We're praying together. My favorite, we're eating together. And having community helps us to keep our eyes on the fact that our salvation is not in man, but it's in God. So where are you today? Do, Do you fear man? Are you working each day to gain favor by man in one way or another? Do you find salvation in people, your children, your spouses, 
your boss, your coworkers, a friend, people that you maybe have never even met, but you interact with them on social media. How much of what you do is driven by these fears and the desires to present yourself in a certain way? Do you run from opportunities to let Christ be known because of that fear? Or do you fear God? Do you flee from sin regardless of how it makes you look to other people? I know so well the draw and the lure of pleasing people. It is so enticing. It gives you such a feeling of importance in the moment. But it's a trap. The feeling is fleeting, and before you know it, you're in chains. The desire can never be fulfilled. And I can tell you on the other side of it that the freedom you have and the rest and the refuge that you have in a loving, all-powerful God is so worth letting go of that desire. The way I want to end today, I mentioned uh, earlier this book, Timothy Keller. It's called Prayer. If you've ever... Uh, struggled to to know how to pray or to get into a rhythm in your prayer life, man, this is so good. It just gives practical ways to help you talk to God. How do you do it? It gives you examples, structures of it. And um, near the end of this book, Keller gives an illustration for and a question about your soul. I'd like to use this illustration as, as one example of how you can check yourself each day. He says, if your soul were a boat in the open sea... With both oars and a sail, how would you describe it? And he gives a few different, different ways to describe that. First is, are you sailing? If I'm sailing, I'm living my Christian life with the wind at my back. God is real to my heart. I feel his love. Frequently, I see, I, and I, I see prayers being answered. I see remarkable things when I read scripture, and I sense that the Holy Spirit is speaking to me. I can even sense that people around me are influenced by the presence of the Holy Spirit within me. Are you sailing? Are you rowing? If I'm rowing, I am finding prayer and Bible reading to be more of a chore or a duty than a delight. There are many times that God feels distant. I don't see many prayers being answered and, even, and may even be struggling with doubts about God and myself. However, in spite of these spiritually dry feelings, I don't give up. I don't give in to the temptation to think that I know better than God and how my life should go. I keep reading and I keep praying. I keep attending worship and I keep reaching out to serve others. That's if you're rowing. Are you drifting? If I'm drifting, I'm experiencing all the conditions of rowing, but instead of actually doing the work of rowing, I'm letting myself drift along. I don't feel like approaching God, much less obeying him. So I don't pray or read. I give in to self-centeredness, perhaps even allowing a pity party to set in, and I drift into self-indulgent behaviors. And the last is, are you sinking? If I'm sinking, eventually my soul boat will drift away from the shipping lanes and truly lose any forward motion in the Christian life. Numbness of heart will set in and turn into hardness. The wrong kind of hardship or crisis in life could even lead to total abandonment of faith. These are hard questions to ask yourself. It's not the funnest thing to do um, in the morning or at night before you go to bed, but I challenge you to check yourself. Do you know who God is? Do you really know? Have you tasted? Do you trust Him? Or is your fear in Him? Or is your fear and your trust in people? If you would pray with me. 
Father, we thank you that as we sang uh, before I came up here, God, that it is finished. There's nothing else for us to do, God, except to surrender and submit to you. And we pray that our fear would be based in you, God. It would not be based in the people that we're around, that we interact with, the desires that we have to be liked. But God, that we could just surrender to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.